you are all checked in now, so you can just take a seat and the doctor will see you shortly. Right, okay, sir, I'm just going to get you to step on the scales for a second. Have you considered losing some weight out with your joint pain? You can't be fat and happy. It's a tea that you drink and it melts all your belly fat. All right, class, who can tell me what a healthy snack looks like? Before we start you on treatment, we're going to need you to lose some weight. You'll never have a baby unless you lose weight. Thank you for waiting. The Fat Doctor will see you now. Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the Fat Doctor podcast. I'm Dr. Natasha Lamy and today I am joined by one of my all-time heroes, Reagan Chastain. I first heard Reagan speak when I joined the body acceptance community and I have been addicted to her ever since. She is a speaker, writer, certified health coach and thought leader in the fields of body image, health at every size and weight stigma. She has so much to say on this incredibly important subject and I am delighted to be able to talk with her today. So let's get straight into the interview. Thank you so much for being here, Reagan. As I just said, you are essentially my mentor, even though you don't know it. And I learn pretty much everything I've learned so far, I've learned from you. So I'm so excited to have you here as, as, you know, like sitting down thinking about who I wanted to have on this podcast. Yours was the first name that came to mind. So thank you for being here. You are the weight stigma expert as far as I'm concerned. So in your own words, can you explain what is weight stigma? Thank you for having me for all the kind words about my work that like I'm all reclamped now. So uh, weight stigma. Yes. Uh, let's talk about this. So the thing about weight stigma is that a lot of people think of it as like street harassment and online trolling. And that is certainly a huge part of it. But there are so many different ways that weight stigma appears. And so in general, weight stigma is ways that people who are living in larger bodies are shamed, stigmatized, bullied, harassed, oppressed. And so street harassment, trolling, that's certainly an option, but there's also healthcare and at almost every level of healthcare, right? Research often doesn't include fat people, tools and training, drug development, those don't include fat people. And then fat people are blamed when we don't fit into a system that was created that is excluding us. And then of course, there's regular old practitioner bias, all of that. Employment is another huge area. In one study, fat people earned $19,000 less than thin colleagues, even though their qualifications were the same. And so, you know, within employment, fat people are hired less, paid less, and promoted less than similarly qualified thin people. So there's that piece of it. There's things like getting your children taken away, either because you're fat and seen as an unfit parent or because your children are fat and you're seen as an unfit parent. So that's an aspect of weight stigma. You know, it's restaurants that don't have booths that fit you. It's, you know, theme parks that build whole rides that don't fit fat people, even though options are available to fit fat people. So there are all of these aspects to it. A lot of it, you know, one of the things that I talk about when I talk about privilege is that we don't know what we don't know. That's what privilege does to us. Because if, you know, you'll see people who will go, oh, it never occurred to me that like people wouldn't fit in a chair. Right. Because I've never had an experience of like walking into a waiting room and not fitting into a chair. I've never had the experience of the airline telling me that I should pay twice as much as somebody smaller than me for the exact same flight because they didn't bother to accommodate me with the seats. And so it's a process of learning for people who aren't fat. And for people who are fat, I think it's a process of realizing this is becoming my problem, but it's not my fault and it shouldn't be happening. Absolutely. 
so true. I I can't. I don't think I realised as a as a fat person who has kind of always been fat, but but never really understood that it wasn't my fault until recently, and that actually this is a form of discrimination, just like any other form of discrimination. But yet, it's not something that we can really defend ourselves against legally. You know, we we can't challenge it. We can't challenge those employers to to give us more money, or we we can't challenge that doctor to 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 treat us fairly. But that's something that you've been doing, that you've been kind of campaigning for, I guess, for for most of your career. Can you kind of like tell us a little bit about how it all started for you? Sure. Um, and I want to point out before I move on that stigma within weight stigma is more intense for people at higher weights. So for example, I face more stigma than someone who's 100 pounds lighter than me, but I face less stigma than someone who's 100 pounds heavier and also harms people who live with multiple marginalized identities. So people who are fat and black and trans and disabled, etc. Um, the privilege is a relative thing and especially within weight stigma is a relative thing. But for me, my journey started actually through research. So I, um, I, was trained in research in college and I had been, you know, being given these diets my whole life. And I realized I never really researched any of them. I just did whatever, you know, a healthcare practitioner told me or whatever was like the latest thing. And so I decided I was going to read all the research and find the best diet. I was going to find the one that worked the most and I was going to do that one. And I mean, you know what I found, which is that there wasn't a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were successful at this long term. And most of the studies were so bad that like, I cannot tell you how hard I would have failed if I had turned these things in like my freshman year, right? 70% of the people dropped out, 30% of the people lost five pounds in two years. And they're like, yep, this is a successful intervention. Like successful at what? I could lose five pounds right now with a loofah and a haircut. I don't need two years of an intervention. What the heck, right? So I, and I mean, I went through these studies twice. I was doing the calculations by hand because besides white supremacy, the idea that I could be thin if I wanted had been sold to me more aggressively than anything else in my life. And so I really had a hard time wrapping my mind around like, there's literally no evidentiary basis for this. And you like, I'm reading it, I'm starting to feel a little bit like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, right? Because I'm like, it's just not, it just doesn't fit. And at this point, the internet was around, but it was pretty new. And so I wasn't connected to all these resources and this community of health at every size. I didn't know that was a thing. I was just like this chick with these studies going, I'm a fan of math and logic, so I'm not going to do this anymore. But like, what can I do? And so that was, so I was sort of on my own personal health at every size journey. And then I started competitively ballroom dancing and naively thought that I would be judged on my dancing. I don't know like what I was thinking, but I, you know, I, I was a good dancer. I danced all my life. And so I was able to apply that to ballroom. I had judges who said things to me like, you're going to lose weight, right? Like what a waste of talent at your size, right? Like that was a kindness they were giving. And so it kind of came to a head. I was I finished this competition. I was sick. And so I felt crappy and I'm carrying all my gowns and shoes and makeup just trying to get back up to my hotel room, right? And so this judge kind of charges at me and kind of pins me up against an elevator. And it's like, we have to talk about your waltz. And I was like, yeah, it wasn't good. And she said, no, that dress. And I was like, because I had this new dress. It was beautiful. It was it's a velvet gown with red embroidery and spaghetti straps. And I still have it. It's a gorgeous gown. And she said, you know, I couldn't stand to look at you. And so I had that moment of like, am I going to be like, quote unquote, classy? Or am I going to go off on this lady? And I was just tired and sick. So I said, okay. And she said, I mean, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I said, okay. 
She said it a couple more times and then she put her finger in my face and she was like, you have no business wearing spaghetti straps and like red face and veins bulging and just like so angry. And I was like, bing, this has nothing to do with me. Because nobody gets that. I don't care how last season that dress was. or Nobody gets that upset about spaghetti straps. Like this was her body image issues that she was trying to give me. And at the time, I was kind of hoping for a wee for Christmas. So I wasn't really about taking the gift of her body image issues. And so I, she said, you know, I talked to your coach and he said I could talk to you about this. And I was like, well, I'm 30. So you don't have to ask permission to talk to me. And I said, and I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. And her face got really red and I like legitimately thought she was going to take a swing at me for a second. Like I was thinking like, do I drop the stuff? Like, and she just finally like turned and walked away, which at that point was all I wanted in the world. But here's the thing. I had always been like social justice minded. I led my first uh, protest in kindergarten. And so, and I had done in college, I had done a ton of like queer and trans work as a queer woman. I had done a lot of anti-racism work and I was on this personal health at every size journey, but I hadn't thought of being fat as being part of an oppressed group, right? I just thought it was like a personal thing I was dealing with. And like in that moment, I had that realization, like I wanted to be a fat dancer, but I was going to have to be a fat activist to get that done. And so like, I guess I should find her and thank her for, you know, this revelation or whatever. But that was the moment when I realized like, oh, no, this is a this is like a cultural oppression. And that's I started my blog dances with fat to kind of talk about my experiences as a fat ballroom dancer and thought, you know, more about it. And what's funny is that, again, I wasn't connected to this greater community, no idea this had been going on since before I was born. And so embarrassingly, some of my first blogs, I'm like, maybe I'm the first person who's ever thought of this, which is ridiculous, ego crazy. Um, But as I was blogging, like somebody was like, oh, you know, this thing that you said, Marilyn Wan says that too. And I was like, Marilyn who now? And that is what got me. In. And so then I learned about Marilyn Wan and I, you know, learned about this community and like got connected. But it came through like that weirdly personal experience. Why do you think people get so angry? Because they get so angry with us just for existing. And I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there about how it's different depending on how how, how big you are. And everybody has privilege and, and most people have some form of oppression. Some people don't. Some people are thin, straight, white, male, cis. But, you know, a lot of us have some kind of oppression in life. But then we also have lots of privilege. And I, I acknowledge that whilst I am in a bigger body, I'm, I'm not in a, you know, I'm still, I'm relatively small. There are people who are in much bigger bodies that are experiencing way more discrimination, just face-to-face anger and vitriol. And people say things that I just, I cannot believe that they say these things. I thought I had it bad until other people started telling me what they've heard, what they've been told. And I was like, no, I don't have it bad at all. I have it easy compared to some people. Not as easy as a thin person, not as easy as like, you know, that that perfectly formed woman that walks into a gym and everyone kind of applauds. You know, when I'm showing up in like my husband's old t-shirt and like, you know, because I can't find clothes that fit and, and I'm sweating and I, you know, look ridiculous. People are still looking at me and judging me, but it is completely different if you're 50 pounds heavier, 100 pounds heavier, 200 pounds heavier. People are so angry that they approach you and stick their finger in your face and start shouting at you. Why? Why do people do this? What do you think people, why do you think people react like that? So there's, I mean, you've got your trolls, right? And these are people who are like looking for a way, I think, to feel better about themselves. And so they found like, this is a group of people I've decided to lash out at. 
and I, I don't have a lot of compassion, but I can find like some pity for that. I can't imagine like what would my life have to devolve to in order to become a person who did that. But for people like this judge, I think it was she's someone I, you know, I was new to dancing, so I didn't know like these people's backstory. She's someone who gains and loses the same 20 pounds over and over again, which is the experience of almost everyone who attempts weight loss, right? You lose weight short term, gain it back long term, try again, you're going to have that same weight cycle. And so when she's at her heaviest, she feels she doesn't deserve to be seen. And she feels that she should restrict and punish herself and that she should, you know, hide her body until she's at the low end of her weight cycle when she feels like she deserves to be seen. And even at her heaviest, she's nowhere near as heavy as I am. So for me, just to be dancing around carefree, smiling and winking with my arms flapping in the breeze, that was too much for her. And by the way, I looked at the the video later and she certainly could stand to look at me. She could not take her eyes off me. She was so mad. She was talking to my coach, but she was staring at me the whole time. So I was glad to have the video evidence that like that was the experience she actually had. But yeah, I think for a lot of people, they've been told, you know, fat is bad, thin is good. And they are not able to reach that stereotype of thinness or that quote unquote ideal body weight that they're supposed to reach. And so, but they give, they dedicate a ton of time and energy and money to doing that. And so when someone says, I opt out of that system, I don't think my body's any more valuable, thinner or fatter. I think my body's worthy and valuable any size. I opt out of diet culture for whatever reasons, because of the evidence, because I just don't feel like it, whatever. I do what you do you, but like I opt out. That's not okay with them because they need other people to suffer like they're suffering. They need other people to buy into their paradigm to feel okay about what they're doing. And they need to be rewarded for, you know, that the time during their weight cycling when their weight is lower. They need to be rewarded for that and they need that to make them better than somebody else. You see it in sports a lot too. You know, people who need to be better than somebody else to feel good about themselves. Right. And actually, that's really interesting that you said that because that my, I was like you, I had no idea about the kind of health at every size, kind of fat activism community until, you know, until I did. And actually for me, that, that's very recent. And I, I admit to like being right at the beginning of this journey, just as I've, as I've learned and as I've read and as I've kind of explored, I've, I've met all these wonderful people who have been doing this for such a long time. And I think, wow, so much wisdom out there very, very, very small marginalized voice that we very rarely hear in mainstream media. But actually the first time I came across you, Reagan, I think I was reading an article and it was something to do with like plus size and being an athlete of some kind. And I Googled you and I remember the first thing that came up was this absolutely hideous, essentially trolling website. Someone has actually dedicated a website to hating you. And I remember in that moment thinking, I need to know who this person is because anybody that inspires that much hatred has to be doing something right. They've got to be doing something right. To host a website, you know, like dedicated to somebody sort of dismissing someone. So that was at the time, I think it was, you had just started doing like the Ironman thing. Is that is that what had happened? Or you were competing in a marathon or something? So I'm fascinated by this story because I love everything about it. What is that all about? So the the trolls started before that. They started when I was dancing. And it's, I call them my There Before the Grace of God fan club because they're just like so dedicated to me in a way that would be sweet if they weren't trying to ruin my life. You know, that website is used to every time I announce a speaking gig, they try to get it canceled. Every time I announce a partnership, they try to get it canceled. So they really do try to, you know, mess up my life. They show up at events and haze me at one. They set off a fire alarm to try to get a talk canceled. I I got some death threats for a triathlon I was doing where they said, we're going to show up and drown you in the swim. And then they showed up and made sure that 
I knew that they were there. Like the guy was like, Hey, you know, what did our website say about you this morning? Like while we were standing in the swim corral and then I had to like get in the water and swim. Uh, so it, it goes from funny to like not okay, like really not acceptable in any way. But yeah, there used to be a group on Reddit called Fat Hate. And it stayed around even when Reddit said, okay, we're canceling all hate groups. They let fat hate stay, even though hate was like right there in the name. And I was a popular topic then. And certainly I am not the only person who gets trolled. And I am not, I don't get the worst trolling of anybody. Like I don't mean to set myself up that way, but I, you know, I was a popular target. I remember in 2012, one day I got 5,000 uh, comments on my blog that were all from trolls saying like various forms of like kill yourself. And it was like a coordinated attack among a bunch of bodybuilding websites and like 4chan and Reddit and stuff. So like that was sort of the experience I had. And then this, so when they should, they finally shut down fat hate, they started up a group just for me. So there's a group with over 6,000 people in it that does nothing. My mom found it and she's like, did you know this group is like, they have their own rules. A couple years ago, they did their own annual awards. They voted for categories and they did nominations. They voted and then people like won a little bit of money if they want for like trolling me. Right. So if you want to troll me, there's like some money in it, I guess. But yeah, it's so my mom was like, I don't know if I should be horrified or impressed. And I was like, yeah, same, same. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I mean, it tells me that the work I'm doing is important and that I'm effective at it. I hope these people hate me, right? Like, these are not people who I would want their approval ever. So if they were ever like, boy, she's really got a great point. I would be like, I really need to rethink that. Like, clearly I've gone wrong. These are not people like I welcome their vitriol. These are people I hope hate everything I say and do. But yeah, it's been an interesting ride. I mean, I didn't, I had no idea it was that bad. I'm genuinely shocked. And the, the hate part, I think, you know, the fact that they have nominations, that is awesome to me. I, I genuinely, I respect the hell out of you right now just for having a group that hates you so much that they have their own version of the Oscars just about hating you. Like, that's next level of like, I will never get to that level of activism. It's what I aspire to and I dream of. But the threatening to drown you and the death threats, it, it, it crosses over. But I think this is the thing about certain people who do things like that. I don't think I've ever sent somebody a DM that wasn't like, I love you. You're amazing. You know, I, I very rarely send people messages if they don't know me. And if I do, it's only to say something nice. I've never even written to someone to say, hey, I disagree with you. Even the idiots out there that I really heavily disagree with, I don't write to them because they didn't ask my opinion. So I'm not going to give it to them. But trolls are different subspecies of human as far as I'm concerned. And now if I was a psychologist, I would be able to analyze them to death. And some psychologists do analyze them to death, but let's not go there. I'm curious to know why you choose to continue doing, you know, your your marathons, your triathlons, your stuff like that. Like, why did you even think about doing it in the first place? No, the dancing I really loved. And then I moved to LA and left my coach and partner behind. And around the same time, had like a freak neck injury. And so the doctor said, all the things you like to... I've always been interested in like fitnessy things. And I, I want to start the fitness talk by saying this. Absolutely nobody's obligated to participate in fitness. Everybody should be welcome. That's what my work's about. If you want to participate, you should find a welcoming environment. But if you don't, that is fine. Like participating in fitness doesn't make people better. I say a lot that watching a Netflix marathon and completing a marathon are morally equivalent activities. And I can tell you if you're slow enough, they're both an option for taking an entire Sunday. So I've always liked to do fitnessy things. And so I got this neck injury and the doctor said, all the things you like to do, the sort of high impact explosive movement things, you can't do that right now. So you can walk or you can do water aerobics. 
And so the water aerobics still hurt my neck. So I was like walking, but I'm just like not a person. I know people who just love to like take a walk. I am not that person, right? I like, I like dance, go as hard as you can for two minutes, right? Through every plane of movement, not like gently move through the world. And so I was like, if I don't do some kind of big goal, I'm not going to do this walking. And so I was like, I wonder if people my size have done marathons. And like, this is a very me thing. I don't recommend it, right? I wasn't like, I wonder if I could do a 5K. I was just like, what is the thing, right? Like a marathon, that seems like a huge goal. And so I found out that 20 weeks away, which was the amount of time I was in this, you know, restricted movement was the Seattle Marathon. And my best friend lives in Seattle. And I looked up to see if other fat people were doing marathons. And at the time, what I found were doctors saying, you shouldn't even attempt a marathon unless you're within 20% of your goal weight. And I was like, oh, it's settled then. I'll be doing this. So I emailed my best friend. I was like, you want to do a marathon with me? And like immediately he emails back, I'm in, right? Because he's my best friend and that's what he does. And he's amazing. And so we did that marathon and it was so miserable. And it took me four hours longer than I thought it was. We finished literally in a dark alley. They had shut everything down. It was like, instead of going into this beautiful stadium with lights and a finish line, there were like locked doors to the stadium in an alley. And like they gave us a banana and a Mylar blanket and we're like, see ya. Um, So <laughs> it was a completely ridiculous experience. But I found out afterwards that I could have gotten a Guinness record for heaviest woman to complete a marathon. And I was like, oh, great. I'll send my time and they'll give me their certificate. But no... You have to do a specific one and you have to meet all kinds of requirements because we had, Kellerick and I had named ourselves Team Dead Last and Team Never Again as we were doing this marathon. And so I was like, I got to do another one. And I couldn't get myself psyched up to do it. And so I was listening to audiobooks from other endurance athletes trying to like get motivated. And a bunch of them had done Ironman triathlons. And I was like, this is because part of this this thing with the marathon was also that I only ever participate in sports I'm good at right away. Right. So like, I think I've played basketball one time in fifth grade and I was crap at it and I was like, never need to do that again. And so part of it, because I get what's called a lot of times the fact is some good fatty privilege, right? When you perform health the way that people want you to, they treat you better. And that's, it's, bullshit and it shouldn't happen, right? But I, that happens. And so people, you know, these trolls would be like, you're the worst dancer in the world. And I'm like, count the trophies, three national championships. I'm excellent at this. But in marathon, I am, you know, by the standard by which they judge, which is how fast you get to the finish line. I was the worst by so much, so much. And so, you know, it was pushing out of my comfort zone personally. Like there's probably things about me as an athlete that I could learn if I would actually do something I wasn't good at right away. And then also understanding that experience of being like the quote unquote stereotypical fatty. And of course, with stereotypes, like the problem isn't that people meet the stereotypes. The problem is that the stereotype exists. But it was like a really a good learning experience for me about myself, about being a fat person, about being a fat athlete. And so I was like, oh, this Iron Man sounds like the biggest expression I can think of, of this thing that I'm trying to do, right? I can suck at three sports over a pretty long period of time instead of just this one. And so I decided to train for the Ironman and train for the second marathon as part of that. And so I did the second marathon. I got the Guinness World Record and training for the Ironman has become a debacle. I'm in like the seventh year of a two-year plan to get it done. But still, and now I'm having neck surgery. So we'll see how I recover and if it's even a possibility to still do it. I'm really fingers crossed that it is. I hate having a goal that's not finished. But yeah, so that's where that all came from. (laughs) 
That's amazing. Because it's, it's you, I guess, act, it's, it's your activism. It's a form of activism, right? I mean, it's not you being naive or going into this thinking that you're something that you're not. It's you going in with your eyes wide open, but saying, I'm going to do this anyway, because I can, because I'm allowed, because someone gave me permission to, or not that they should be able to give you permission, but you know, there's no rule saying I can't do this. So I'm going to do it. And like, I don't mind coming in dead last. And I don't, I, you know, it's the fact that I'm here and I'm, I'm showing other people that I can be here and that they can be here. And I love that. It, it was so encouraging. And I have a friend who I get on really well with. She's one of these people that challenges me and looks, likes to challenge me. She doesn't always agree with me and is good at expressing that in a, in a good way, in a helpful, kind way. And we were talking about you. I was like going on and on about you. And she was about to run a half marathon. And I was like, well, you know, I, you know, I've got this friend because you're my friend now. I tell everybody you're my friend. Uh, you had just sent me that amazing post for me to share on, on my Instagram page about being an athlete. And I read it to her and she read it and she was like, yeah, she's saying lots of really good things. I totally agree with what she's saying. But if she keeps running, she's not going to stay the same shape, like gonna lose weight. And it was this, you know, you know, she and I get on really well. We don't always see eye to eye. I didn't have this conversation with her because it wasn't the right place. But do you get that a lot? Do you get people saying to you, but why haven't you lost weight? (laughs) So much. And it's always like, sometimes they'll come up and say, keep at it, you know, you'll lose that weight. People would come up to me and trying to be, I guess, kind or I don't know, when I was dancing and say like, you're such an incredible dancer, but like, you're here all the time. And how come you don't lose weight? And I'm like, well, some people, you know, just don't bodies are, you know, the size they are. And it's a myth, the idea that if you if you exercise, quote unquote, correctly, you'll become thin is not proven by research at all. In fact, the opposite is shown like people don't you know, lose weight long term from working out. And so it's, it's an interesting thing, but it's a myth that is really persistent. And then there's the belief that if you didn't lose weight, then you must not be doing the workout or you must not be. Do- so like when I was a dancer, they were like, Oh, it's because you do all this high intensity work. You need to do like moderate cardio over a long period of time. So then I do a marathon. Oh, well, it's because you're just doing moderate over a long period of time. You need to do high intensity. Yeah when you're fat, it's always like, work out, not like that. <laughs> like, whatever you do isn't the right thing, you know? Right. Because they, because you don't fit the narrative. You don't fit the narrative. Here you are, somebody who, on behalf of basically every fat person out there, is proving that, listen, you can exercise. You can, you can do a marathon and train for a marathon and still look like me. And people cannot accept this. Do they assume that it has something to do with your diet? Is that, is that where their mind goes? Oh, it's not the exercise. It's because you eat like a pig. Is that what they think? Yeah. There's like all of these fitnessy sayings. Oh, you can't outrun a bad diet. Like, okay. I've got some bad news for you about dieting as well. And I want to say too, there are incredible people in this space who were doing this before I was. Myrna Valerio, Latoya Shante Snell, Martinez Evans. There are people who do incredible work running. There are fat people who are much faster than I am, right? I happen to be both slow and and fat, but there are fast fat people. There are slow thin people. But yeah, this idea that if you did it right, you would be thin is pervasive and completely wrong. Right. And so you're a researcher, you know, all of the research here. And I want to kind of hand over to you now. And there's so many issues. I mean, you know, talking about weight stigma is not going to be possible in, in the space of an hour. But what are some of the kind of really big myths that we need to, you know, using scientific evidence now, bust, let's bust some myths. Like what are the main ones that you think, look, people need to know this from the beginning? The biggest one is that anybody who wants to can become thin long term. 
right? Again, there's not a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people achieve significant long-term weight loss. And that's just the reality. And the reason why people think that's not true is because the weight loss industry has taken advantage of the fact that most people do lose a little weight short term. But then about 95 to 98% gain that back. And about 66% of those, according to uh, Man and Tomiyama in 2007, are gaining back more than what they lost. And so what the diet industry has done brilliantly is to take credit for the first part of a biological response. And then to blame their clients and get their clients and others to blame themselves, that's a critical part of it, for the second part of that same biological response so that people then go back to the diet industry again and again and again. And so this is how they've gone from making $20 billion in 2012 to $72 billion in 2019. You cannot have that kind of exponential growth if your product works, right? So that's the big thing. And people really struggle with that because it's sold to us. Anybody can do it if they work hard enough. And you know there are those outliers who do it. And so it's like, oh, my cousin's friend's babysitter's hamster's nanny lost weight and kept it off. And so there's that. A lot of people, we hear about them in their honeymoon period when in that first year. And then people are encouraged like all kinds of pictures and social media posts about losing weight. They don't do that when they gain it back right? They just kind of shrink back. And so we don't hear the honesty of the journeys, right? There's like before, after, 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 and we never hear about the after, after. Obviously, this is a myth that has infiltrated the medical community. And it's, as a doctor, it's something that I learned before I started medical school. So I already believed it before I even started. And there are studies that show that, you know, the majority of medical students in the first year are already have implicit and explicit anti-fat bias, the vast majority of them. So you come into medical school believing all of these untruths, these lies and myths about, about weight and weight gain and weight loss. And then you go through years of training, which is as as anti-fat as you could possibly imagine, to the point where we describe people by their body mass index. Like it is an actual way to describe somebody that, you know, 35-year-old female, BMI 46. Like that is how you describe a person. And that's put on the handover board when you're handing over, like, you know, on a ward, it's put on people's notes. It's one of the first things you write in a letter. It is everywhere on an ultrasound report on a, it's, it's just, it's all we talk about. Like we're obsessed with BMI and yet BMI is completely and utterly inaccurate. And there's, there's no question about this, that BMI is completely useless. It is one of the most useless, ineffective measurements of health that we have, and yet we're obsessed with it. What What about weight stigma in the medical community or, you know, in the healthcare profession as a patient, but also someone who has a lot of, you know, background in research? What can you tell people about that? So I also want to point out BMI is straight up racist. It is based completely in racism. Um, if you've not, if you're listening to this and you've not read Sabrina Strings Fearing the Black Body, I highly recommend reading it immediately. Really good explanation of a lot of this. So again, it, this is harming fat people of color at higher rates than fat white people. But in general, when I talk about like dealing with fat phobia at the doctor's office, the thing that I want to point out, or especially I, ta- I give, so I talk to lay people about how to deal with this. And then I talk to medical professionals about how to provide appropriate evidence-based care to fat patients. And they're two very different talks. One involves the first talking to lay people, I talk about like social justice and what they deserve, their engagement matters. And with healthcare professionals, it's a very evidence-based talk. Like what you are doing does not meet the requirements of ethical evidence-based medicine informed consent. Fight me. 
So, but I don't actually say fight me. I try to present it in a way that's humorous and fun. So the thing that I think is at the root of this is the idea that if fat bodies experience a negative health outcome more often, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, it's because the body is fat, which ignores the staggering inequalities in healthcare that fat people experience. It ignores the fact that most fat people are told to diet over and over again. As we've said, the diet doesn't work. So weight cycling is independently correlated with the same health issues to which being fat is correlated. And Bacon and Aframore in their paper found that the entire excess mortality for fat people in the NHANES and in the um, Framingham study could be explained by weight cycling and the effects of that rather than by fat bodies. And then, so another really interesting study, I think, especially with COVID, in 2009, there was an H1N1 outbreak. I love this study. So yeah, so there's an H1N1 outbreak and fat people are getting sicker. They're having more severe outcomes and and more death. And so at the time, there's all this hypothesizing, oh, it must be that fat people have constant low-grade inflammation. Oh, it must be receptor sites. Let's figure out what's wrong with that bodies that's causing this. So after the outbreak is over, Sun et al. goes in a retrospective study, and this is a study based in fat phobia. They were not coming at this from any kind of like size acceptance, health at every size, fat positive. This is incredibly fat phobic in its language. But what they found was that the entire difference in outcomes could be explained because thin people were given antiviral treatment sooner than fat people. That's what happened. Thin people got better treatment than fat people. And so fat people experienced worse outcomes. And so now when I see fat people are getting sicker and dying more from COVID and I see, oh, it must be low-grade inflammation. Oh, it must be receptor sites. I And knowing what I know about this study around H1N1 and what everyone who's doing this work, epidemiologists should certainly be aware of this, right? Oops. One time we thought it was fat bodies, but it turns out it was practitioner bias. Right. And, and, and this is the thing that, you know, I, I, I bang on about over and over again to my colleagues. When you stigmatize somebody, a patient, they lose the ability to trust you, to communicate with you. They are far less likely to comply with you. But most importantly, they are going to avoid coming back to see you. And all of these things result in poorer health outcomes. You don't need science to tell you that. You just need logic. It is logical. And when I look at that study that came out seven years after h one I think we didn't learn anything. We just got worse. And now millions are dying. I mean, this isn't, this is, you know, H1N1 was bad, but this is colossal compared. And from the minute the outbreak started in the UK, I don't know if it was the same in the US, but there is a particular doctor who writes books and is a cardiologist, but is a television sort of, you know, his, his bread and butter is TV work. And he kind of came into the media really strong, really hard, right at the beginning saying, COVID's going to kill you. 90% of people who get COVID over a BMI of 40 are going to die from it. I mean, he was he was quoting statistics that had absolutely no basis in evidence at all. Even the studies that had come out that early, I mean, you've read them, right? They, they are unacceptable. They don't qualify. They, they, you know, people in high school can do better than that. So they use databases that went back to 2006. Like that automatically disqualifies you from even writing a piece of research. Like you just stop there. 2000, too long ago. Never mind. Let's not bother. But that, that came out. And then of course, our prime minister went into hospital with COVID and he is obese. I hate that word. And, you know, but that's what he's defined as. And this cardiologist went hard. He really did. And there was so much in the news. If you're fat, you're going to die of COVID. 
by April, you know, the lockdown started in March. By April, everyone knew this. This was, this had become gospel. And no matter what anyone said to the contrary, even when these brilliant studies came out much later, where they looked at thousands and thousands of people and said, actually, there isn't that much of a correlation. Once you account for things, once you start like breaking it down, it's not the fat body, it's the inequalities. By that point in time, everyone's mind had been made up. And that includes every single doctor on the planet. And then by the way, this cardiologist, a couple of months later, brings out a book that talks about how to eat well for your immunity. So of course, he was just doing it to make money, but nobody cares about that. We accept that fat people deserve what they get. And so when, when we find out that fat people are dying of COVID, we're like, yeah, well, they kind of deserved it, didn't they? It hurts just to talk about, but what's, when you talk to health professionals, let's just say, I mean, I don't need the whole talk, but what, what do you, what do you say to them? How do you start to get through to them? Because they don't want to listen, but how do you try? Where do you, where do you go? What do you say? So I start with the assumption that they want to do the best for their patients and that they believe that they are. And I explain that what happens is the studies that they're depending on, right? Because doctors don't have time. And especially in medical school, as you know, is ridiculous. It's too much information to ask somebody to memorize in that amount of time. And so obviously, they don't have time to go tracking down every study and like seeing, going through the tables and seeing how accurate the study is. And so I talk about the quality of research and how they've been failed by that. And so then I, the, my premise is, look, in order to believe that weight loss is an ethical evidence-based intervention, you would have to first prove that weight loss is possible for at least the majority of people, and then you would have to prove that weight loss will make people healthier. These are two separate things. And so not only is there not any study that shows that you know, more than a tiny fraction of people succeed, there is no study that looks at people who have successfully suppressed their weight long-term to compare their health outcomes right? To fat people, to fat people who've practiced healthy behaviors. And so we talk about that. We talk about the studies that show that people with similar behaviors have similar outcomes, regardless of size. So Matheson et al., Way et al., Barry et al., Cooper Institute Longitudinal Studies, go through that. But yeah, so I look at a really, from an evidence basis, you know, you've been failed by research and you are therefore failing your patients. And it's okay because there's better things that we can do. And it's called a practice of medicine for a reason. You know, we talk about how like in the past, like heroin was once prescribed as a non-addictive substitute for morphine. (laughs) Oops, oops, that's our bad, right? Or, you know, so I think one of the problems is within medical care, there's been a loss of the ability to say we were wrong and to let it go. Like, so in 1992, the NIH admitted that almost every diet attempt fails. 1992. Last year, a group of Canadian quote-unquote obesity experts, again, I hate that term, it was created specifically to pathologize fat bodies, as you well know. So they these experts got together and they said the same thing. Oh, yeah, dieting almost never works. But they did not recommend stopping. <laughs> like this is where they were like, oh, well, like then I guess we'll do more extreme things. We'll risk people's lives with drugs and do surgeries to mutilate their stomach, to put it into a disease state, to force behaviors that mimic an eating disorder. That seems really like a great idea. But they didn't even say, so we should stop prescribing these diets, right? So this is, we've known for a long time, this is not new information that diets hardly ever work. But the piece we don't talk about enough is that even if they do, there's no proof that that would make people healthier. The idea that if I can make this person look like this person, then they'll have the same health outcomes. And one of the examples I use a lot with doctors is cis male pattern baldness and cardiac incidents. There's an extremely high correlation between cis male pattern baldness and cardiac incidents. 
extremely high. Um, but we don't say, we, if we stopped there, if we did what we did with like weight, right, we'd say, oh, well, we got to get these guys to grow hair. Yeah. Right. Right. If we can get them to grow hair. And so we'd have like a world war on baldness and we'd be recommending dangerous drugs and surgeries to grow hair because obviously the problem is that they don't have hair and these other people do. Right. That's ridiculous. And obviously they, they didn't stop there and they found that it's a third factor that causes both the male pattern baldness and the, the increase in cardiac incidence. But with weight and health, we don't take that second step. Instead of saying, oh, there's like a diversity of body sizes and we're not sure why. And like we just say, oh, we'll make the fat people look like thin people and then they'll all have the same health outcomes. That's not scientific. Let's talk about the reason why for a moment. I mean, there is not enough money to be made in making bald people gain hair. I mean, there is money to be made. There is a market to be cornered there, but it's not a big enough market. But the weight loss industry, as you said, is so, uh, you know, profitable and has been for such a long time. And, and it's it, it started because of racism. It started because of white supremacy. It started as a means of oppressing people. And it continues to be a means of oppressing people. And I think this is the point, isn't it? How the medical community is is complicit in this form of oppression is that we refuse to let go of things, even though we sometimes can even admit, yeah, you know what, the evidence is wrong. We still can't let go because th- there's too many influences, outside influences, and money is such a big part of that. How much money is being made from, from bariatric surgery? How much money is being made from, you know, semaglutide, like Novo Nordisk has been pumping so much money into getting people to kind of acknowledge that obesity is a bad thing and, you know, and, and it's going to kill everybody. And why? Because they're bringing out a drug that you can take, but you'll have to take for the rest of your life and it costs a fortune, but that's the only way that's going to keep weight off. And it, we don't even know if it's going to work long term because it's not been around long enough to know if it's going to work long term, but that's what they're selling us. And it's impossible to to get past that kind of barrier, I guess. So I sometimes feel really, really sad, but then I hear sensible people like you who come with the research. I really didn't know that about baldness, by the way. I may borrow that little piece of information. All yours. (laughs) And share it with everyone, (laughs) because that's amazing. What about if you're a, a person in a bigger body who is really struggling with this, you know, listens to this and just those there's no hope for me. I, I, you know, what can I do? Like, what do you say to people like that? So before I go on, I just want to, one thing I failed to say in the last part, like the, the way that healthcare is right now, it's based on the idea that fat people's bodies are less valuable and more riskable, right? So if a thin person has high blood sugar, they're given evidence-based interventions to lower blood sugar. If a fat person has high blood sugar, they want to amputate your stomach, right? Because it's considered reasonable to kill a fat person in an effort to make them thin. And I think that's important to understand. So if you're a fat person out there and you're like, I, you know, this is a mess and this is affecting me and like, there's no hope if I'm not going to be thin, you know, then what? Like, that's something that, you know, I definitely had to come to terms with, right? And Kate Harding had a piece and calls it the fantasy of being thin, right? You had this whole idea of this life that you were going to lead when you're thin. And I had like lists of stuff I was going to do. And so at some point I was like, all right, again, fan of math and logic. I'm looking at the research. I now know this to be true. So I got to stop waiting for a thin body to show up and I'm going to take my fat body out for a spin and see what it can do, right? And so what I want to be clear about is that like weight stigma is real and we can't love our way out of it. Like you can't love your body into a theater seat that doesn't fit you, 
right? So learning to love and appreciate our bodies to see them, see them as valid and worthy and like wield them as a weapon against fat oppression, that is an important thing to do. But that doesn't solve weight stigma. And so what I came to realize is that I had spent years fighting my body on behalf of weight stigma. And I was going to stop doing that. And I was going to start fighting weight stigma on behalf of my body. And that reconceptualization is what really helped me to, to realize, like, just as a queer person, right? Like, I came out in Texas in the mid-90s, right? But I wasn't going to do, like, quote-unquote conversion therapy, and I wasn't going to pretend to be straight. I was going to fight to be who I was authentically. And so, as a fat person... That's this, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to fight to be who I am authentically. And I might not be able to solve weight stigma, but I'm going to live the best life I can managing the weight stigma that I have to manage. Oh my gosh, I could cry. <laughs> that is such an amazing way to look at it. And I, I don't think anyone has ever put it quite so eloquently to me before. And that is exactly right. Um, I don't think there's anything I can add to that. I knew, I knew you were going to say something brilliant and you just said loads and loads of amazingly brilliant things. Everybody should know you and everyone should be listening to you and everyone should hear what you have to say. If they do want to hear you or, or want to listen to you, where can they find you? Uh, so dances, if you haven't, danceswithfat.org is sort of the center of my little universe on the web. And from there, you can find all of my social media accounts. You can also find, I do a monthly workshop. This Interestingly, this month on April 28th, I'm doing dealing with fat phobia at the doctor's office. Uh, and so you can always find like the workshop that I'm doing. And all my workshops always have like pay what you can options and stuff to make sure that money isn't a barrier. That's Dances with Fat is the place to find me. And it's an amazing place that I basically spent spend a lot of time there. <laughs> I'm really excited about this workshop. There was a part of me that was just like, should I, should I, um, and I think the only reason I can't go is because of uh, the timing thing, because obviously yeah. I'm in a very different time zone to you. But this is amazing. I think it's so great that you're holding workshops like this. And I look forward to the day that we no longer have to hold workshops like this, because you won't have to worry about dealing with fat phobia in the doctor's office. The UK just brought out an inquiry into body image. And uh, it's the first time I've seen, you know, like a government <laughs> stamp on a document that essentially says that body mass index is rubbish and that we should adopt a health at every size approach. Interestingly, it says that policymakers should adopt a health at every size approach, not practitioners. And I suspect that's something to do with the fact that, that that was not part of the remit of their inquiry, but they were talking about policies. And I was excited because it's the first bit of evidence that I get to point to and just say, actually, do you know what? It's not even this little small community that's fighting. This is now something that the government has put their stamp on. And I'm hoping that with time, our guidance is going to change and that doctors are going to realise that they simply cannot practice medicine like this anymore because it is unethical. And as an appraiser, as somebody who appraises other GPs and signs them off every year, and essentially in the UK, you have to be signed off every year, you have your appraisal every year, and every five years you revalidate, and it's based on those appraisals. And you have to tick lots of boxes, and there's one domain, domain four, that says, I practice 
medicine fairly and without discrimination. And every year it is your responsibility to prove that you are. And the fact that doctors are consistently doing the opposite when it comes to fat people, to me, it is completely and utterly unacceptable. And the body that I, the bodies that I belong to, the General Medical Council, the Royal College of General Practitioners, and basically everybody else has to accept that when you put a statement out there that people are signing their names to, you've got to be able to prove that you are doing exactly that. And they are not. And we have the evidence to, to prove otherwise. So my, I guess the only thing I'm interested in doing right now is, is, is not, you know, impressing the trolls. It's not, you know, you know, my taking my fat body out for a spin and, you know, and advocating is about going to the professional bodies that I pay every year a registration fee to and saying, hey guys, you're doing this wrong. So you've got to change. And I am so, so grateful for you coming on. I'm hoping that there are going to be some health professionals that are listening right now that will think that's a amazing. I have to learn more. Let me go check out what Reagan has to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you so much for having me. One other resource I want to let people know about, been doing this project with Dr. Louise Metz and Tiana Dodson called the Hayes Health Sheets. And so they're diagnosis specific sheets that explain weight neutral care for like specific diagnoses like high blood pressure or fatty liver disease, etc. And so it's H-A-E-S healthsheets.com. We've also got a resource bank. So if you're looking for a study, that shows something or other like we have that there we have the practitioner searches there so it might be a nice place to start if you're trying to get care like you shouldn't have to gear up for a doctor's appointment right you shouldn't have to come with studies you shouldn't have to decide on a strategy for managing your doctor's ego around the malpractice they're committing on you but like that's where we're at most of my work, it's like, I'm glad to be able to do it. Like, I'm very grateful that I get to do this work in the world. And I'm very sorry it's necessary, right? And I wish I could just like go be a stand-up comic. And my biggest problem is like people heckling me and thinking I'm not funny. Like, that'd be great. But yeah, so thank you for what you're doing. I'm so thrilled to know you. I'm so, so excited about the work that you do. And I'm really grateful to get to be part of this and get to be friends with you. Yeah, me too. Um, those haze heat sheets, by the way, I cannot tell you. A, I have read them all inside out. They have changed how I practice medicine. True story, because they're evidence based. I've read all of them, and so when I am treating my patients now, I kind of I send them to those sheets. But also, I, I get in, I get contacted on a you know near daily basis saying, "Hey, can you give me some advice about this? Can you give me some advice about that?" And I always say, "I cannot give you personal medical advice. That's against you know my code of conduct." But check out this website and every single time someone comes back to me and just goes, oh my gosh, that was amazing. Thank you. So I love these. Those The three of you have done an amazing thing here. Honestly, it is life-changing. It's life-changing for patients, but it's also going to be life-changing for doctors. And I cannot wait until the NHS is handing out these health sheets to their patients. And of course, paying you for the privilege. Like we have to get it in there as well. <laughs> so thank you so much, Reagan. Honestly, thank you for all your amazing work. There's HayesHealthSheets.com. And we'll put the link in, in this podcast because they are outstanding. And uh, as you said, danceswithfat.org. If you're not there, why are you not there? I'm there all the time. We have to, you know, we have to be visiting. Um, I know it's really super, super late where you are. So thank you for staying up, for joining me and um, hopefully get a chance to talk to you again soon. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can find out how to connect with all my guests and join my private Facebook community, Friends of the Fat Doctor. All the information is in the show notes. And I hope you'll join me next time.